0: its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. From providing clean air and water to supporting fertile soil to offering services like pollination, flood control, and more, wildlife provides innumerable life-sustaining and life-enriching benefits that youth populations, not to mention the world writ large, will depend on for years to come. However, the Earth has lost half its wildlife since 1970, and every day up to 150 species disappear. Wildlife faces numerous threats tied to human activities, including habitat destruction, illicit trafficking, and over-exploitation. Most ecosystems face multiple threats, thereby exacerbating the effects of each. Large swaths of natural habitat are being converted for agricultural, urban, mining, or infrastructure development, while simultaneously experiencing pollution, invasive species, and rapidly changing climate conditions. When practiced unsustainably or illegally, certain human activities such as hunting, fishing, and harvesting directly impact wildlife population numbers, while rising temperatures have countless effects on species and their habitats. Despite their frequent close ties to wildlife and ecosystem services, women and girls continue to be underrepresented in decision-making processes and other spaces related to natural resource management and conservation. These women and girls know all too well that wildlife conservation is of utmost importance in every corner of the globe, including biodiversity hotspots such as Alaska or Florida, Brazil or Indonesia. In this discussion, we'll hear from two young women working to protect terrestrial and aquatic animal species using innovative approaches that demonstrate the important role of youth in wildlife conservation. Please join me in welcoming our panelists, Anika Puri creator of the Elephant Savior, or ELSA, and Claudia Renta Ortiz, founder of Tingle Amigos. So welcome, Anika. We are so happy to have you here with us today. Would you mind telling us just a little bit about yourself and the ELSA project?
1: Thank you so much for having me. Um, so hi, my name is Anika Peary. I am from Westchester, New York, and I'm currently a freshman at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I hope to study electrical engineering and computer science, and potentially with a minor in biomedical engineering. So my research is titled "ELSA," a wildlife poacher detection solution that leverages machine learning-driven spatiotemporal analysis of nighttime thermal infrared videos. And so, wildlife poaching of endangered species has um. Been a highlighted issue even by the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so, when I was sort of researching this, I was looking specifically at the disparity in the movement patterns and hoping to increase the accuracy of detecting poachers.
0: Thank you so much, Anika. We'll come back to you in just a moment. And Claudia, welcome to you as well. Would you mind telling us a bit about yourself and the Tinglamigos?
2: Hello, everyone. First of all, thank you for having me here. For me, it is a lovely opportunity. To talk about the conversation of the planet. And I am currently at the University of Puerto Rico, Mayagüez campus, and I am a geology study, student. And I would like to share about my organization. And Amigos is a Puerto Rican organization which was founded in 2014 with the vision and mission of protecting the letterback turtle, which is the endemic species in danger of extinction and also to incorporate children to spread awareness at a young age and allow them to have all the best natural experience in Puerto Rico. We are characterized by going to the beach and help the letterback turtles reach the oceans without interrupting any natural process. And you may ask, where does the name come from? Well, tingla amigos mean in Spanish, friend of the letterback turtle. Inglar, meaning letter turtle, and amigos, meaning friends. And I think this organization is the perfect reference or definition about what I, I am a passionate about. And I really love to be in contact with the nature and contribute to the marine ecology.
0: Thank you, Claudia. Well, um, I'm sure that everything you've already shared is providing sparks of inspiration for our audience today. And let's see if we can take that a little bit further, shall we? So I have a question for each of you uh, to really start this off. I'd love for both of you to maybe reflect on the question of what inspired you to take on this work to get us started. So Anika, I'll start with you and then Claudia, will go to you next.
1: Yeah. So um, I remember the first time I was sort of truly exposed to wildlife poaching was when I was visiting Mumbai market with my family. And so there, what I saw was just rows of ivory jewelry, ivory statues, and I was really just taken aback by this because I was like, you know, wildlife poaching, is illegal? How come it is still such a big issue? And that's really what got me thinking about, you know, what is currently happening? And when I started researching more into this, I saw that over 67% of the entire elephant population has disappeared in just the last decade. And that's when I thought, you know, what are national parks currently doing for this? And I saw that recent solutions have low accuracy, specifically when the drone is flying at higher altitudes. And that's really what kind of inspired me to look further into this problem and see what could I do about this? And, you know, what are some other just solutions to this such a big pressing problem? Awesome,
0: thank you so much. And Claudia, how about you? What, what inspired your work?
2: Well, since I was a child, I have a fascination for everything that has to do with nature, especially in marine ecosystem. I remember that it was a casual day in Puerto Rico and I was in the beach and suddenly, I saw a plastic barrier that was about six meters long, and that captured my attention. So I got close to the area, and I saw a paper that contains information about what was going on. And I learned that I was standing in front of a letterback turtle nest, and I have never heard about that species before. So I proceeded to call the phone number that appeared on the paper. And this phone number belonged to a turtle group that called Siete Quillas. Which, is, which was an organization that helped me to construct my own organization. And they explained me everything about this huge turtle. They told me that if I was interested, I could join as volunteer. So I did. And while I was in training, I realized that there was no much children of my age in this organization. All of them were adults. So I asked myself, why don't we make an organization similar to this one, but integrating kids of my age or younger? And that's what I did. I worked all summer to make my own organization, and I sent my project to the Department of Natural Resources in Puerto Rico, and they accepted my organization to be part of the conservation of this turtle.
0: That's amazing! Wow, the impact you've already had, and and you both obviously have you know so so much more impact ahead of you. It's it's truly exciting. So I'd like to maybe get down into the brass tacks, the details of what it is that, that both of your projects are tackling here. And so, Anika, I'm going to start with you here. To set the stage for us, can you tell us about some of the traditional methods employed by park rangers and park managers to monitor endangered animal species and identify poaching threats, and what are the drawbacks of these traditional methods?
1: Yeah, so currently in national parks, they're deploying drones equipped with very high resolution thermal cameras. And so these drones are flying around the national park and their video footage is then kind of going back to the ranger stations. Now at the ranger stations, currently it's a very tedious procedure where technical operators must manually look through this video feed 24 seven looking for poachers, which as you can imagine, very tedious and very error-prone. Now, recent research has worked to automate this process. However, they're using shape-based detection algorithms. Now, imagine the drone is flying at altitudes of 500 feet or higher, and you're looking for little elephants and humans that look like little specks in the video footage from 500 feet or higher. Now, this is resulting in low accuracy when we're deciding, is this object an elephant or a human solely based off of its shape? So that's currently what's happening in national parks and why I was so surprised when I saw that the accuracy was so low as low as 20% or it was manually being done.
0: That is really surprising. And and so when you went ahead and were doing your research, you ended up developing a prototype again called the Elephant Savior or ELSA. Um, so can you tell us how the ELSA prototype overcomes these challenges and, you know, ultimately results in pretty impressively accurate poacher identification?
1: Yeah, for sure. So while I was kind of looking at these data and these videos of elephants and humans, I began to realize that as humans, we don't recognize objects solely based off of their shape. We look at other factors. For example, you know, how is an object moving in space and time? And I realized that this was a valuable piece of information that could be taken from videos, the movement pattern of that object of interest. And looking at a series of movement patterns and videos of elephants and humans, I saw they're quite different with the respect to, you know, the turning pattern of an elephant versus a human or the speed with which they move. And so I realized that we could potentially use this disparity in the features of the movement patterns in order to increase the accuracy of detecting poachers. And so with ELSA, I was able to extract a series of movement patterns from a data set called the Birds AI data set, which is a collection of thermal videos. And from this, I was able to train a machine learning model to see, okay, these are features that differentiate these two movement patterns. And what I saw was that they were like number of turns, the radius of the turn. And with this, I was able to utilize these features in order to increase the accuracy of detecting poachers, to over- 90% accuracy, which is over four times the current state of the art solutions. And- I think one of the things I saw as well was that currently we're using high-resolution thermal cameras because, of course, a human is looking at it or we're trying to see the shape of that object. But with a movement pattern, we really only need a couple pixels to track that object of interest. So this entirely mitigates the need for these expensive high-resolution thermal cameras costing thousands and thousands of dollars. And so in my prototype, I used a $200 commodity FLIR thermal camera. I love
0: that. It's impactful and practical. It's it's uh, hard hard to achieve that sometimes. Um okay, so let me turn back to you now Claudia. Um so your work as you as you've noted um, at least has started with um, the leatherback turtles, and we'll, we'll talk later about some of the other species you're expanding to, but during the leatherback turtle nesting season, can you tell us about some of the strategies that the Tinglemigos use to help the turtles that are in the process of, of nesting or hatching?
2: Sure. Well, we try to do the work without interrupting mother nature. The leatherback turtle can nest about eight times in the period she visits the island and we can predict when she will come back to put their eggs. This prediction is not sure, and that's why we monitor the days are near to the predicted days or the days before, in case the letterback turtle does not nest in the day we establish. So when we spot a mother turtle nesting, the first thing we will do is control the people are nearby. We orientate them and make sure no one is in the path of this turtle. We usually put a rope to avoid people entering the area. And during the nesting process, we will tell them all they have to know about this turtle. And when it comes to help the mother turtle, we usually let them do their work. But sometimes, new turtles reach out to the coast of Puerto Rico. And the turtle have problem on nesting because it is the first time they will put their eggs. So the common problem we have Is that the turtle does not make the hole deep in the sand to deposit her eggs. Other problem we have is that she deposits her eggs near the water. And this is a problem because the probability that the egg does not develop correctly are high. So what we do is usually we put it back carefully and wait till the mother turtle put all the eggs. And when she's ready to go, we make sure she goes to the correct path. And then we do the sand hole for her and put, the, and put her eggs on the, on the correct deepness. And other factors that can put the mother turtle and her eggs in dangers are predators. In the process of nesting, we, we get sure no turtle get harmed by predators. When predators such as crabs and pelicans see a lot of people near the area, they don't usually get close. But sadly, when we left the nest, we cannot make sure no predators eat their eggs. Um, honestly, the probability that predators in Puerto Rico eat the eggs are low because, as I mentioned before, we make a plastic barrier to identify the nest. And that plastic bar- barrier avoids the path of any organism, including humans. But in some areas of Puerto Rico, we have seen predators such, cla- such as crabs and even dogs that eat the turtle or eggs. And sadly, when we notice this, it is too late. But additional things we do: it's collect the debris in the beach. We take the data of the turtle, such as the weight, height, and how many times she has nested, and where does she come from?
0: Wow, that's that's a lot of stuff, <laughs> and and really impressive that you know you were able to really train a community of people to help in this process. And that leads me to my next question for you, which is, why was it so important for you to give youth communities the opportunity to help turtles in this way? And why do you think these youth communities were, I guess you could say, you know, really excited to get involved?
2: Yeah, so it is very important because this species is in danger of extinction. And we should spread this information to new generation. To teach the importance of protecting not only the total, but our ecosystem. Our, our island and even the world um, have some negative factors such as like pollution, coastal erosion, and more factors. And I think that making people realize the current factor and the current natural problem can provoke that people start finding solutions and get more aware about the current natural problem. Um, One of the experiences that our kids have to join this organization is to get involved in the process of the letterback turtle nesting. They get fascinated when they see one. And I have the wonderful opportunity to experience an eclosion, which is when the turtle is born. And this experience makes me possible to conservate the letterback turtle in Puerto Rico. These kids get fascinated. And the most important thing is that we gave them the opportunity to do their work. And that's how they learn. And that's how they usually fall in love with all of this process of letterback bacterial nesting.
0: That's amazing. Sparking that interest early on can be so hugely impactful. I know that is the case for me, not with turtles specifically, but doing different projects related to the environment definitely stoked that interest in me personally the rest of my life. So I think it's really exciting what you're doing with the, the community around you. Um, Anika, I'm going to turn back to you now and reflect on on the previous question that you answered about uh, your your prototype system. And you you alluded to the fact that you're able to generate this prototype much more cheaply um, than the current state of the art systems. Can you tell us more about how you physically constructed the prototype and the different components you use and really the advantages they offer, even if it's beyond just cost, I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, for sure. So in order to actually sort of test my prototype, I needed to obtain a drone commercial license. And for that, I, just made the age limit and was able to obtain a drone pilot license in order to actually be able to fly the drone in my backyard and be able to actually test this methodology that I had. And so the process looked a little bit like this where I had my drone and then I knew I needed a thermal camera in order to actually obtain this thermal footage. And so for that, I was able to use a $200 FLIR thermal camera. And for this, I was able to use this sort of less resolution in comparison to the high resolution ones because of the fact that movement patterns can be tracked with even a small number of pixels. And so utilizing this, this $200 FLR thermal camera is actually able to attach directly onto a phone. And so this iPhone 7 that I was using, it is able to have my software model, which I was using to detect the um, kind of difference between these two movement patterns and identify the poachers with, was directly deployed on the iPhone itself. So this was also minimizing the time that it would take because with the model deployed directly onto the phone and the drone, it was able to detect an object of interest as a poacher and an elephant within a matter of milliseconds with the model. So I was able to sort of deploy this phone and FLI thermal combination onto the drone itself and is able to fly it up in the air in order to actually test my methodology and be able to see that it's able to accurately identify an elephant versus a poacher with um, its movement patterns and the disparity between the movement patterns of an elephant and a poacher.
0: That's so cool because you were basically able to build the system based on existing data and then take it out in the field in a way and test it and and confirm that it worked the way you expected it to. What was that feeling like? Were you excited?
1: Yes, for sure. I mean, I remember um, when I was actually field testing it, of course, I was doing it in my backyard, so The poacher or the human movement pattern was me walking around in circles, but I think it would definitely be very exciting to get to implement this in national parks and be able to test it on a variety of different animals with elephants. And so, yeah. Well, let me
0: actually just follow up with you now with a question about just that. So what are your personal goals for next steps in implementing this system? Do you have any particular locations in mind where you would like to see this tested or maybe even eventually deployed in like a larger scale?
1: Yeah, I think one of my kind of primary goals would definitely be to implement this methodology and be able to actually test it out on the field in national parks. And I would love to test it out in national parks in Africa and Asia, and I would love to be able to also kind of increase the size of my data set, which would be able to happen sort of in parallel, where it'd be able to sort of collect that data and be able to enhance the accuracy of detecting poachers even further. Because currently I'm utilizing around, I was able to extract around 516 total spatial temporal time series from the data dataset that I was utilizing, which was in um, kind of a dataset collected from South Africa. And so I'm hoping if I was able to implement it in a similar location, I would be able to sort of gather even more data and also be able to test out the methodology in the field.
0: Well, here's hoping we can help you do that in the future. We can't wait to hear about that progress because <laughs> it sounds like your work will be really impactful in those locations. Yeah. Um, Claudia, I'm going to turn back to you now. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about why you started your work with leatherback turtles specifically as the focus of your organization? And then I'll get into the the future of the organization and and some of the other species you're working on today.
2: Yes. Um, So as I mentioned before, the leatherback turtle is an animal that is in danger of extinction. And knowing that I feel that not many people know about the existence of this organism. We can even say that the later bacterial is a prehistorical animal, a dinosaur. And it has to do to give us a lot for our coast of Puerto Rico, because they're very important for the for the ecosystem, you know, for the ecosystem of our marine life. And that's basically why I select the later bacterial because I think it is like an underrated. Um, species that actually is very important. And yes, that's that's the main reason why I choose this type of, of organism.
0: Gotcha. And as I've been alluding to now for the past few minutes, you have started to expand your reach a little bit in terms of the types of conservation work you're doing. I understand that you are You have been, you know, conducting experiments related to coral reef regeneration. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about these experiments and even the prototypes that you've created to assist coral reef propagation.
2: Yes. So I would like to explain first what is a coral reef. Um, They are actually an organism, and they are exoskeletal structure that segregate calcium carbonate by themselves, and they. Are called the second lung of the planet Earth because they make the same function as trees but in the ocean. And my latest experiment consists of the creation of prototypes and observe which one of them were more effective. So what I basically did was that I create three groups of six prototypes. The first group was porous and contains calcium carbonate. The second group was porous but does not contain calcium carbonate and the last group was soft without calcium carbonate. So we conclude that the prototype that contains calcium carbonate and were porous have better effectiveness of percent of living tissue than the other. So in conclusion, it valid that my prototype can be used for the restoration of coral reef.
0: That's extremely exciting, given that I know coral reefs are are kind of struggling um, around the world via, or thanks to many, you know, climate and environmental challenges. What are the next steps in your coral reef propagation work? You know, do you have any specific goals for that?
2: Yes, sure. So I am a currently geology student at the University of Puerto Rico, Mayagüez campus, and I am working with several projects right now, but my goal on coral reef is studying the disease that is new in the coast of Puerto Rico, which is called stony coral tissue loss disease. And this is basically a virus that attacks very aggressively to the corals, and they kill the living tissue. And my goal is to investigate more in detail about this virus and create a solution to stop this disease on the coral tissue. And other projects Additional project that I'm working is the monitor of land of sl- landslides in Puerto Rico caused by hurricanes.
0: Wow, there's really no shortage of, of challenges for you to be tackling with your work is, is the message that I'm getting here today, loud and clear. Um, Anika, I'm going to turn back to you now. We talked a little bit about um, where you would like to see the ELSA prototype implemented and, and some of the goals for the current system. I'm imagining, however, some of the data that you've used to specify the identification of elephants versus poachers could be, you know, translated, you know, by using related data to other animal species in the future. Do you uh, foresee trying to adapt the system to other animals as well? And if so, do you have any in mind?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, Definitely, when looking at movement patterns of all different animals, they all have their own sort of unique features that differentiate all of them. And so definitely, I would love to be able to apply this methodology to the conservation of other endangered animals, both on land and in the ocean, because we can track the movement patterns of, um, you know, on land with that thermal sort of disparity between the object of interest and the land itself. But we see a similar sort of pattern in the ocean as well, where the object of interest would have a different thermal feature than the ocean. So I hope to be able to apply it to all sorts of endangered animals. And currently, I'm hoping to apply it to rhinos because the Birdsea data dataset actually has a collection of different kind of animals in it. So one of which was elephants, also as rhinos, giraffes and other animals. So I'm hoping to definitely apply this methodology to the conservation of a, of a variety of other animals. Wow, very
0: inspiring, very inspiring. It sounds like anyone can take their pick of their favorite endangered species and there will be potential for your product in the future, which is, which is music to I'm sure all of our ears. Claudia, I want to turn back to you now um, and ask you a little bit about something that you mentioned before, which is being able to communicate and message information about turtles, corals, conservation and the environment writ large, with different audiences, and I know that you've done a lot of work, you know, speaking in schools, on beaches, at conferences, etc., to try to advance this this education part of the puzzle. Uh, when you're doing that education, regardless of the location, maybe on a beach or in a school, what are some of the most important messages or facts that you share? I'm hoping you can share them with our audience today.
2: Yes, yeah, sure. So moving to the letterback turtle. The most important message that we share to the audience is how to act when you see a letterback turtle. Usually people get so excited and the first thing they will want to do is touch her or take a picture or even steal her eggs. So to avoid that, we tell specific steps that they should do to make, you know, the turtle comfortable and at the same time to enjoy the experience because it is a beautiful experience. And we orientate people and we really, um, you know, we ask them to not disturb. while well, the turtle is next thing. Um, and moving to the coral reef, something that I really like to share um, with the audience is to tell them that, OK, so most people think that corals are rocks. And actually, they're organisms. And because of the mentality that people have that corals are rocks, they usually, take them and they said, oh, this is like a good decoration for my house, so I'm going to take it at home. And I get sure that people know that these organisms are alive and they're very important because, you know, they get us oxygen as well as tree dust in the earth. So basically that, those are the really important message that I share rather I'm talking to the letterback turtle or the corals.
0: Super interesting. I had not even thought about that point about people thinking corals or rocks before, but you're totally right. I've definitely witnessed that myself. So I'm really glad that's a message that's part of your portfolio of messages that you share with folks. Um, we are, we have a little over five minutes left and I have, I think, a question for each of you and then one that I'd like both of you to answer. So we have about three questions left just for your awareness. Um, Anika, I'm going to turn back to you now and, and go in a little bit of an, uh, not a tangent, but we're gonna go a little indirect related to the ELSA project, which of course is based on algorithms and, and AI and machine learning. You are passionate about ensuring that women, girls, and people of color have a role in developing artificial intelligence and other sorts of emerging technologies. From your perspective, why is this so critical?
1: For sure, so I remember the first time I was exposed to artificial intelligence, it was the summer of my ninth grade, and um, I had just gone to Stanford AI Lab summer program. And there, there was thirty of us girls, all you know, being exposed to artificial intelligence for the first time, being kind of immersed in this world of technology, and truly witnessing you know artificial intelligence applications firsthand, and we almost were not even thinking, you know, there's just so many applications for social good. How could it ever do any bad? But as we slowly started um, kind of looking into it and kind of researching it more, we realized that there, that artificial intelligence, because it is such a database technology, it can have negative implications on the very people it is designed to help. And one of the main things we need to keep in mind while utilizing such a powerful technology is that the data that it's using accurately represents the society that it is going to there on and sort of help. And so what we really need to ensure is that women people of color, and all sorts of minorities in the field of technology are represented, have a seat at the table, and have a hand in making these data sets and sort of creating the technology of the future. And so that's really kind of when I came back from the summer program, I wanted to be able to share this kind of experience that I had and the sort of realization that I had with others in my community. And so I started off very small, just kind of reaching out to my local library, saying, you know, hey, could I like organize this little event and, you know, call over some of my friends and, you know, have a couple like girls together and we could all just discuss this and we could share this sort of information with each other. And so slowly it's grown into a nonprofit organization where we just held a workshop in China, California, and I'm hoping to grow it even further to be able to share this sort of information and kind of share the ethics of artificial intelligence with others.
0: Thank you so much, Anika. We could have a whole other conversation about this, to be honest. Uh, Claudia, I'm going to turn back to you with one final question before we go into our parting thoughts. Um, And this is sort of big picture based on the work that you're doing, the observations that you've had working with these various species. How, based on your observations, would you say climate change and other environmental challenges are impacting sea turtles, corals, or other marine life in Puerto Rico? Yes, so...
2: This is the second factor, actually, that impacts the ecology of nature. The first factor is the anthropogenic factor, which is the human factor. So basically, the climate change affect the food change. Animals are dying because of the ocean heat. And one of the animals that are affected are jellyfish, the main food of sea turtles. Other things that impact climate change are coral reef. The second, I'm sorry, the sea turtle home. So what this makes is that the turtle left their their safety place and get exposed in danger. And this is how predator attacks the turtle. Climate change is affecting us too, and it is one of the hardest topics to put an end into.
0: Absolutely. Well, we will be moving on to more climate conversations in our next session. But before then, I do want to invite both of you to respond to one final question, sort of your 30 second parting thoughts, take home message, if you will. And that question is, what is one piece of advice that you would share with our audience, you know, from around the uh, United States or around the world who might be interested in taking action to prevent wildlife in their own communities? So let's switch it up. I'll start with you, Claudia, and then we will end with Anika.
2: Yes. So the first thing I will share is to have determination and confidence on yourself. On my experience, making this organization took me a lot of work. But I think the key is always be in the present and never give in the chance of the negativity to interrupt your work. I also would suggest to do networking. This is very important because working as a team will always get you further and will help your organization grow as well as yourself as an individual. So I will totally recommend never do things alone, always sharing things with people, Um, with people that know about the topic so they can help you to reach you out how to compose the organization or any project you would like to do. And finally, I will also advise for you to visit national parks, beaches, forests, desert, or any place with wildlife. Be aware of your surroundings, aware of possible problems, how the ecosystem works and educate yourself about your local life. I
0: love that. Thank you so much, Claudia. And Anika, any final thoughts from you as well?
1: I would definitely agree with everything that Claudia has said. And definitely for sure, like, when you're just starting out in your community, any action will make a difference no matter how small it is. So you can start out by just, like, recycling in your own home or, you know, keeping in mind light pollution or making sure you don't don't put chemicals in your grass. So small, small things can all make a difference in the wildlife in your own community. And I feel we should never think that, oh, this is too small, I'm sure it won't have an impact. But all the small things add up and we should all do our own little, little, little parts that will eventually make a whole. This
0: podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station Virtual Event Series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the US Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.